um, remember that Jesus has gone up on the mountain and was transfigured. Which disciples were with him up there? Peter, James, and John. How many does that make that were down below? Anybody good at math? Nine. Twelve, take away three. And uh, so now we come back down and we see what's been going on with the nine. So 14 to 29. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes who arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and grinds his teeth, and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirits, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Wow. So a lot's been going on with the nine. There's a crowd, there's kind of a commotion, and what's been happening? They've been trying to cast out a demon. Yeah, from whom? Boy. Yeah, from this man's son. What was going on with this boy who was demon possessed? <clears throat> he would have seizures. Yeah. Foam at the mouth. All kinds of crazy things. Yeah. I mean, you know, sounds like some pretty severe seizures. Uh, you know, almost like epilepsy or something like that in in the manifestation and and really really uh, severe couldn't speak, you know, so I mean, he's really, he's really tormented, and the disciples were unable to cast this demon out, and Jesus said, well, bring him to me, and what happens when the boy gets close to Jesus? It happens again. Yeah, he has another seizure, <laughs> and you know, he's foaming to the mouth, rolling around on the ground in convulsion. And this has been happening to him from childhood. It almost seems like the demon's trying to do what with the boy? 
I think so. Throwing him into the fire, you know, trying to burn him up, trying to drown him in water. This is a very um, destructive demon. And uh, you can imagine how troubling this would be to the father. And he says in the end of verse 22, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, you know, it's an interesting way to put that. You know, can Jesus do anything? <laughs> you know, but after taking it to the other disciples and they couldn't, maybe a natural thing for him to say, Jesus turns that around on him. He says, you know, he said, the, the man said, if you can do anything, Jesus said, if you can, you know, all things are possible to him who believes. You know, or maybe he's quoting his, if you can. Not sure which way he means that. But either way, the fact is that Jesus can. That's not the problem. You know, does this man trust Jesus to bring his son to him and, and have him be healed? And I love the, the father's answer. Does, does the father believe? Yes, <laughs> He says, I do believe. And then what does he say? Does he believe or not? Yeah, but he still sees his weakness in faith. And so he asked for Jesus to help his unbelief. I think this is a great attitude. You know, he's not saying, I believe in an arrogant attitude. He recognizes lack in his faith and begs Jesus to help him grow to believe more. Um, when we have that kind of spirit, well, yes, we're believing all we can, but we help my unbelief. You know, I... I don't feel like I am the way I should. But I think Jesus sees that as well. And verse 25, Jesus does a couple of things different than what a lot of people do. When did Jesus heal this boy? When the crowd was gathering. When he saw that the crowd was gathering. Now why did Jesus heal the boy when he saw the crowd was gathering? Was he trying to heal him so everybody would see him? Or was he trying to heal him so they wouldn't see him? Seems almost to me like maybe he's trying to uh, hurry up and do it before there are a ton of people there. I think that's the case. He sees the crowd is gathering, so he goes ahead and heals him. Now most people, I think, would wait until everybody got there. <laughs> wouldn't they? Why? Well, yeah, you want as much uh, publicity, you want as much uh, attention as possible. I mean, so, you know, you send a couple warm-up acts onto the stage, and was the crowd still getting there, and then at the peak, you come and make your dramatic entrance and do your whatever. Jesus obviously was not trying to get attention for himself with this, often tried to seem to avoid, uh, try to avoid attention. So he saw the crowd was gathering, and he tells the deaf and mute spirit to come out of the boy and what? Do not enter Yeah. Jesus was able to do that. I know in Brazil there's lots of churches that cast out demons all the time uh, from the same people week after week. And uh, they're not like this. Jesus said, leave and don't come back. And uh, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do in our life, if we believe as well. Cast the devil out, but for him not to come back. 
Jesus has the power to accomplish that. But, when Jesus said that, what happened to the boy? More convulsions. To the point where? Once it left him, that he was so, they thought he was dead. Yeah. Kind of like one of those deals where uh, they report the operation was a success, but the patient died. You know, uh, <laughs> you know. Here, here we cast the demon out, but poor guy, he didn't make it. But actually, he did. Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. Probably the convulsion was so violent it left him kind of, you know, not energy. But but he's fine, and uh, and that solves the problem of this boy. I, how many times can you think of? in the Gospels, where Jesus or his disciples attempt a healing or a demon expulsion that they are unable to complete. I think just here. I don't know of any others. I think this is the only one. And in this one, the failure was only temporary. Jesus reversed that. But all the other times, as far as I know, if Jesus or his apostles tried to heal someone, it always happened. So this is unusual. And I think the disciples see this as unusual as well. And they ask him, why could we not drive it out? And what does Jesus say? This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Yes. What does he mean by that? relying more in their power than they are in the power of God. I think you're right. I think they're trying to cast out this demon on their own steam instead of turning to God in prayer. Matthew connects it with their lack of faith. But I think faith in the sense of trusting and depending on God. My, my <coughs> thinking is did, well, let me ask you this. Did the disciples theoretically have the power to cast out demons? Yeah. Jesus gave it to them back in Mark chapter 6, and they were able to do that. So, but think about what it would be like. And I think we're a lot this way, too. Can you imagine when Jesus sent them out on that limited commission, and they had their first opportunity, they confront a man who's demon-possessed, and Jesus has given them the power to cast out demons, but how do you suppose you'd feel the first time you tried it? <laughs> How would you feel? Superman comes to mind. Before, before yeah. you did it. Oh, I mean, I was thinking I did that. They, yeah, I'm thinking up, leading up to it. How would you feel as you confronted this guy? I want to cast it out from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you'd be scared. I think you'd be insecure. I think you'd be praying a ton. You know, please help me. You know, have the strength. You know, whatever. I mean, I think you'd really, really feel, uh, I don't know, I mean, you'd, you'd really feel inadequate. You'd really, you'd really feel like you needed the Lord's help. You'd probably just thank Him over and over again once He did it. And the next one you came across, you'd still feel pretty scared. And you'd pray quite a bit. And the third one, you know, and the fourth one, and by the time you get to, you know, n- number 256 here, or whatever number it was, you've done this, you do this, you know, there was no problem, get out of there, guy. You know, I mean, no prayer, no turning to the Lord, no even really thought that you need the Lord for this. You cast a bunch of them out, they just do whatever you say, so, 
You know, do you see how we tend to do that? You know, we're really insecure when we first start out our Christian life and we feel really vulnerable and tense and like, man, I've got to pray constantly because I don't know if I can make it and really need the Lord's drink. But after we gain some victories and successes, we pretty well start like, no, you don't even think about the Lord that much anymore. I'm doing great. You know, that's what I'm seeing in them. Why wouldn't they have prayed? I mean, this is an amazing thing. Jesus would say, why could we not drive it out? And Jesus said, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. That makes me think they didn't pray. Can you imagine trying to cast out a demon and not even praying? Well, you ever tried to uh, deal with some satanic temptation in your life and not even pray? You know? I mean, we may not be much different than what they are. And it may be what Jesus does with us is make it to where we fail. We fall flat on our face and we fall into the... It's like, what happened? Well, maybe the answer is, there's a strong temptation. You need to pray. You just try to do it on your own. That's what I'm seeing. Comments and thoughts. Could it be the sort of the prayer of the Father also, as opposed to the prayer of the disciples. I mean, he, the, the Father says, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And it's not until um, verse 24 where there's a plea, a prayer in the sense of a plea, I do believe, help my unbelief, kind of please help me, uh, as well. I mean, I don't think so. But, you could be right, but I don't think so. I think this is focused on the failure of the disciples here. Because the fact that there's no other example of a failed healing doesn't strike me that the issue is ever so much, you know, the father or even the victim. It's, it's more with the healer. And, you know, I really think in verse 19, and you some people may not follow me on this one, but I think the one believing generation how long shall I be with you is more Jesus' frustration with the disciples. You know, and and in uh, in Matthew uh, 17, 19. This may be the most helpful thing. That's Matthew 17, 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. But truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of mustard seed, you can move the mountain. Uh, so, I really think it's it's the disciples that blew it. What does, well, what does 23 mean? And again, where you put your emphasis. Um, and why was, why was he saying, well, all things are possible to him who believes? Well, maybe... Maybe the point is to say, wait a minute, this is not a case of me being able to. If he's citing the words, if you can, well, you know, Jesus, whether Jesus can or not, that's not an issue. You know, he, if the person trusts, he can do it. So maybe he's mostly just trying to say, wait a minute, my ability in this is not in question. That'd be my... Because, I mean, you know, I, I may be wrong, but 
I just don't see that that there really is a limitation on healing based upon like, well, you didn't believe enough. Or you just didn't quite... Now, there's a limitation like we looked at in Mark 6. If they don't bring people to Jesus, they don't trust him enough to bring them to him, then he doesn't heal them. But, but you know, I mean, think about... Well, I mean, Jesus in, in Matthew 17 talked about, you know, faith like, faith like a mustard seed. It doesn't take a whole lot. <laughs> um, and... And so, uh, and, and I think, you know, what about all those times when Jesus just healed a big multitude? Surely, there's, there's rel- you know, people of varying degrees of faith in a big multitude like that. It never seems to affect anything. I mean, Jesus heals them all the same way. So I don't think the faith of the person is, like, has to be at a certain level for them to be healed. Uh, if it's of a level to bring them to Jesus. That's what I think. <laughs> well, yeah, they, <laughs> that's a good point. So his statement, all things are possible to him who believes, maybe another way of saying, you shouldn't have any doubts. Right, right. Maybe the emphasis on all things are possible mm-hmm. to the believer, you know. Because his statement in 22... Yeah, two indicates some doubt. His follow-up statement indicates, yes, I have some doubts. You can understand why he would have after the experience with the other disciples. So maybe Jesus is correcting that misunderstanding, thinking, well, wonder, can you? Do you have that much power? So maybe that'd be the best way to take that. In verse 29, I have a note that says, some manuscripts add the words and fasting. Yes. Please discuss. <laughs> well, some of them do. <laughs> Mine uh, I, As I recall, a lot of them do. And so the question is whether or not it's in the original or not. And there's there'd be a debate about which way it goes. We know that that in the in the early centuries of the church there was a lot of emphasis on fasting. So a lot of the textual scholars would think that that's probably something that was added because of their constant practice of fasting. Um, but I'm not sure how valid that is because I, I actually think, can't remember for sure, but I think this is quite a few manuscripts that do have that fasting. So maybe it's really original. If it is, though, I mean, I... But I think people misunderstand fasting, really, and 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 think of it kind of in a, a wrong way. I mean, if, if he is saying you need prayer and fasting for this, the fasting is just a way of giving more emphasis to prayer by not eating and therefore focusing constantly on God in prayer. You know, it's not like fasting has some sort of merit with God. It's more the demonstration of a real concentration on God because we don't interrupt our praying to eat. So. Because, I mean, part of me is doing, how long did all of this take and did the disciples have time to declare a fast and, you know, participate yeah. in a fast for long enough? That, you, yeah, you and that, I mean? yes, I do. And then it may be in that sense, I mean, 
I, I don't know. It may, it may not be textual. It's not even in the New American Standard, and they don't even have a footnote, uh, which is kind of amazing. But, at least not in my Bible. Well, in Matthew, you, the whole sentence is is questionable because they think it may be a conflation, a conflation to Luke. Now, but this kind does not go out by except by prayer and fasting, as in Matthew seventeen twenty one. But that may just be because they picked it up from Luke. I, I need to I need to go back and look at the text to find it somewhere from Mark. Conflation. You understand the word conflation? Okay. Like. Am I alone? <laughs> 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 I thought it had to do with a fire. <laughs> no, that's a conflagration. Conflation. That's just a that's a term that's used for like when one gospel will pick up the reading of another gospel. And we'll we'll merge the text. We'll like make it similar to the other. There's something real common in manuscripts of especially. Do you know the term synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that have parallel passages? It's really common manuscript differences where where the text will actually be what they call conflated. It'll be adapted to reflect the reading in the other gospel. And we normally assume those are not correct because we see that why. A, 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 a copyist would be familiar with the reading in the other gospel and their head would naturally think that as they wrote it. So those conflated readings, you could also add the same thing like maybe in Ephesians and Colossians something like that, but typically we're dealing with the gospels in that. And there's, I mean, there's tons of stuff about the, the, the textual criticism the actual comparing of the readings of the manuscripts to try to determine what was the original reading. Most of it is not that helpful because there's not that many much in dispute, but there's a lot of things to be read about that. And that's a science that applies to a whole lot more than the Bible. That's done with all ancient texts that we have more than one manuscript. <laughs> then you've got to you know, compare them and you try to come back with the original reading based upon certain principles of you know, there's all kinds of principles that are logical kinds of things. You know, what, you know, what did the majority of the manuscripts show? What did the oldest manuscripts show? What are the transcriptional probabilities? In other words, what's the most likely, would it more likely be changed this way or more likely to be changed that way? You know, can you come up with a reason why there would have been the change? Either, you know, based upon the error of memory or based upon a reason why they'd have had to purposely alter it, you know, or whatever. So there's all kinds of principles of textual criticism that go into trying to determine the correct reading on these handful of, you know, questionable words and phrases. Other comments and questions on any of that or on any of this through 29? Yeah, the... Uh talking about the faith in the, of the, the Healy. Yes. For instance, the woman that touched his garments, he said to her, Your faith is your healed. faith has made you well. Now, I think that would fit in the same definition of this. The fact, the fact that she had faith made her go and do that. Yes. It wasn't her faith because she had enough that made Jesus <clears throat> able to do it or 
that made it happen. But that, I think, would make us tend to think, I mean, that might be one passage you look at and say, oh, well, you have the, the person, the sick person has to have faith to be healed. Yes, I think you're, yeah, and there's several passages like that, but yeah, I think what Jesus meant was her coming up and touching his garments. Just like when Jesus saw the paralytic man being lowered down from the roof, the text said, seeing their faith. What he saw is, they, they really trusted him enough to get that man in front of him. I don't think it means that when the woman touched Jesus' clothes, Jesus went through a, a, a scoring system on how much faith she had, and she, she got high enough, so she got it. I don't think that's the way. I don't ever see the evidence of that. I don't see any time where some people were turned down, you didn't get a high enough score. You know, work on your face some more, and then, you know, maybe you can get this healing. And yet, when I hear people talking from that perspective, it seems like that. And, and, the, and often it's like, well, you really got to work to get this kind of faith. It's really going to take a lot. Well, I mean, the multitudes, did they all have this incredible, huge faith? And when Jesus said, all oh, really, do you have to have his faith like a mustard seed? So I think the faith is the, the action of, you know, asking or touching the garment or whatever. So what does that mean on a spiritual level? Because, like, those are the physical healings and stuff. How does all that relate to us spiritually? Well, probably in very much the same way that... If we'll turn to the Lord and we'll, you know, act and, and seek, he'll, he'll bless us. You know, um, if we don't, if we stay at home and we don't turn to the Lord, then he won't. You know, so it takes for us often faith in the sense of, of turning to the Lord for his mercy and grace. You might think about also the, the paralyzed man in John 5 who was there by the pool when somebody put him in when the water got, water got agitated. And uh, he didn't even know who Jesus was. You know, when the Pharisees asked him, he had to actually go back and find Jesus in the temple and ask him who he was. And then he was able to come back and report. So he obviously didn't have a whole lot of faith, you know. He had more faith in that water being stirred because that's what he You're was exactly trying right. Trying to do. You're exactly right. Yeah. So basically, we need to have a faith that believes enough to for us to turn to God and do yes. what He wants us to do. It's not that we have to go through some mental exercise to make us a great person of faith. So. That, that, I think so. Now, you know, there's plenty of other angles to look at. Jesus often complained to the disciples that they had such little faith. So it's certainly true that we need to grow our faith, and our faith needs to deepen and grow. That's another angle on it. Um, but I think what you see in these things are that you know, it's not like we're going to earn salvation by managing to conjure up this great level of faith. We need Our faith needs to turn us to God and seek Him 
as we seek and submit to him, then God will work with us down more faithfully. So it appears that based on these things, I think the conclusion would be the more your faith grows, the more your actions are going to show. Absolutely. Your faith has grown. So in everything, Jesus saw their faith. And here, you know, her faith, her little, her little action, and it only requires a little bit to get a lot done, but as you get more and more, you have more and more action. No as, doubt. As a result of that. Yeah. I mean, there are so many passages where faith and obedience are virtually, um, you know, synonymous. I think about, this is just one that came to mind, that might be helpful to us. In Romans 1 and verse 8, Romans 1, 8, Paul said, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now look at the last chapter of Romans, chapter 16 and verse 19. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. I don't think that was two separate things. In the first chapter, their faith had, you know, been heard by everybody. In the last chapter, their obedience. I think it's the same thing. And there are tons of, you know, illustrations of that. All right, other comments or questions through 929? Okay. Um, 30 to 37. And from there they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he was unwilling for anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began questioning. He began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So, Jesus is again telling his disciples about what? Yes. Coming events. And these events are a constant um, weight on Jesus' mind. Uh, I read the other day a statement I thought was pretty good that that Jesus, knowing what would happen and his dread of what would happen, made Jesus' whole life a perpetual Gethsemane. And there's a truth to that. That it wasn't just in the garden where Jesus dreaded what would happen. He's thinking about it a lot, and you can tell it, because he keeps talking about it. And he's telling them, this is what's going to happen. Now, part of that is to prepare them. But I think part of it is because that's what's on Jesus' mind. And they don't understand, and they were afraid to ask. Now, isn't that an odd thing to say, that they were afraid to ask? Why? 
because they were uncomfortable with it. Yes. Exactly. I don't think it was that Jesus, you know, bit people's heads off who asked him questions. I don't think they were afraid of, like, his reaction to them were they to ask. I think they didn't really want to know. They were afraid of what he might tell them. So I think that's the sense in which they are afraid to ask. So, since they won't question Jesus, he questions them. What's his question? <laughs> that's like God's questions always are you know when God asks a question don't assume that he's ignorant and is asking for information <laughs> the Lord asks questions to force us to have to answer them because what have they been talking about and so how did they answer Jesus question kind of like the Pharisees <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's what you better not answer. <laughs> they knew they were in trouble. They knew that, that, that he wouldn't be pleased with them. And so they, they refused to uh, tell, them, tell him that they had been uh, discussing personal advancement. And uh, Jesus brings, uh, calls the twelve together. He says in verse 35, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. The way to be great is to humble yourself and serve. And I think we see that most when we look at Jesus. Look at how great he was. Jesus came and served us. He came and lowered himself to the infinite degree because he cared about us. That is an amazing thing. And that man, Jesus, the Son of God, did that. So, I mean, our call is to serve and not to exalt ourselves. And then, Jesus does something, and if you don't read it carefully, at least for me, for a long time I missed what he was saying and what he was doing. Because there are several times when children come up. But this isn't saying the same thing that some other passages say. It says, taking a child, he set him before them, taking him in his arms. So he's got the child in his arms. What does he say to the, the disciples? Does he say to them, in this passage, they need to become like this child? No, he does in other passages. What does he say here? Receive the child. Yes. Now, how does that fit the context? Why would he be encouraging them to receive this child? Well, it would be easy to receive some great popular person, but it's receiving the humble or the lowly. Yes, exactly. To be a servant of all means giving attention to a child, the least significant person, serving those who have no status. How much glory is there in changing a dirty diaper? You know, I mean, giving attention to a small child. Will the small child say, oh, thank you so much. That was so nice of you. Not likely. No. Will they put in a good word for you with important people? You know, there's really nothing to be gained by it from a human self-exaltation perspective. And so Jesus says, you humble yourself by you you know, receiving and caring about 
expecting child like this. And you see, Jesus did it. He was, he was holding babies and little children all the time, eager for them to come, giving them attention, you know, cared about the, caring about the unimportant, the little guy, the guy who has no status and won't do anything for you. That is Jesus' example. And that's what he wants them to do. Quit being self-focused and trying to become the greatest and start trying to serve the lowliest. I think it's a great lesson. Comments and questions? In Philippians chapter 2, um, Paul talks about that. Um, he's talking about um, unity or whatever. And he talks about um, do nothing from selfishness or empty vainglory or whatever. And he... he uh, then talks about how we should consider each other more important than each other, and then he gives Christ's example how he didn't consider um, it to be a great thing, I guess, to come down here and be the Son of God and you know whatever, but he humbled himself and lowered himself. I mean, how could you have a more significant example than Jesus? <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Just, you just, you just can't imagine what that was like. And, and, you know, I mean, wow, aren't we a little too important to get our hands dirty? A little too, you know, worthwhile to do simple acts of service. I mean, I, I think, man, I think we, we struggle with that. We don't, I mean, it may not even be so much the difficulty of the task. It's just the humiliating nature of doing kind of a lowly task. I'll take a harder one, just make it more glorious. <laughs> that really tells you something about us. Comments and questions? Well, that probably stung a little. And, um, how would the disciples react? Now this is a this is an interesting section. I think we'll go ahead and read it all. There's not a good place to break it. Um, but it, it's it's a section where it's almost like, you know, you've got a thought and he picks up one of those points and he gives another thought and then he picks up a point from there and gives another thought and a point from there and gives another. It's kind of a strung together passage. It's, it's a little different way of reasoning than we're used to. So 38 to 50. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe, who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life <coughs> crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right, we'll need to kind of take this a step at a time. And um, John, it almost makes me wonder if he wasn't trying, after he felt a little sheepish about what they were discussing on the way, to point out something they'd done right. What had they done? To prevent someone from casting out demons in the name of Christ. Whoa. (laughs) That doesn't sound like something you ought to be preventing, does it? Why would he be trying to prevent this? He wasn't in the in crowd. Yes, he was not following us. Now, what do you know about the disciples and exorcism at this point? (laughs) (laughs) They aren't always effective. Uh, Yeah. I realize John wasn't one of the nine, but he says we here. You know, they'd recently bungled an exorcism themselves, but they don't hesitate to try to stop somebody else who's being successful in doing it. It's almost like, uh, you know, if they can't do it, they don't want anybody else to either. I, I don't know. It's just really it's troubling. I suppose they thought that if he's not following us, then he shouldn't be doing these things. Um, I wonder, you know, well, well what does Jesus say? Well, how does Jesus feel about this? Yeah. I mean, don't hinder him. For there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is for us. Jesus clearly doesn't want him stopped and sees him as being on their side. Now, maybe we should stop and ask the question, how could somebody be casting out demons in Jesus' name if he wasn't one of these who was with us? Where'd this guy come from, anyhow? The power of Paul and Jesus and Jesus that he preaches, I say to you, get out. And he used it as a talisman, not as the real thing. Someone did. Do you think that's what this guy's doing? Possibly. But I don't think when, and that was what, Acts uh, 19? Seven senses. <laughs> yeah. And remember what happened to them? <laughs> Backfired. <laughs> yeah, it sure did. I know Paul and I know Jesus, but who are you? Something like that. Yeah, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. <laughs> so they were playing with fire there when they tried to use, you know, the name of Jesus without uh, proper authorization. So I don't really think that's what this guy's doing. But it does, it does, you know, raise kind of a, a, you know, at least on the surface, difficult question. You know, what was he doing? I mean, it almost looks like that's what where he came from. What, what, what would the origin of this guy have been? A disciple of Jesus. 
disciple of John the Baptist, maybe? Could be. However, uh, this may not be the implication of that, but you remember what's said about John in John 10.41, John performed no sign. So John himself could do no miracles. You would assume his disciples in and of themselves probably couldn't either. If John couldn't, he couldn't convey it. Could he have been someone who was a witness to this previous... I was going to say, a witness to this previous event where they had problems casting out the demons and then Jesus comes along and but they asked him privately why couldn't we do it. Right. That... I don't think so. I think there's an answer to this, though. Did you ever cast out a demon without being specifically given the power to do so? Did those did those seven friends cast out any demons? Well, I don't know. I mean, there have been exorcisms of all kinds through the ages, but I don't think they really compare. So, I mean, I I don't see any evidence that you could really cast out demons in the name of Jesus if Jesus hadn't specifically given you the power and the authority to do it. Did he give the 70 power and authority to help all demons? Yeah, he did. Okay, is it one of the 70? Well, maybe. Luke 10, that's, that's very helpful. Uh, Luke 10, he sent 70 in pairs. And uh, <clears throat> he, he, he gives them various instructions. And the 70 come back in verse 17 and say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So evidently when he sent them out, he gave them power. We know that he told them to heal the sick in verse 9, but evidently he gave them power also to cast out the demons because they were able to do that in 1017. So what I don't know whether this guy was one of the 70 or not, but what I do know from that is that there were other people besides the 12 that Jesus sent out, and apparently some of them he sent out with authority to cast out demons. Now maybe he sent out even others that we don't know about. If it hadn't been for what Luke said, we wouldn't even have known about the 70. So I don't know if there could well have been others, or if he was one of the 70 or whatever. But that's what I'm assuming, is that he actually had received specific power from Jesus to cast out demons. He was doing it in Jesus' name, not saying Jesus when he did it, but actually doing it by Jesus' authority. I think that's the point of doing it in Jesus' name. It's not that that was the incantation that he used, but that he actually had Jesus' backing for what he did. So... Obviously, if Jesus had authorized him to do this, and John and the other disciples are trying to uh, prevent him, they got in on the wrong side of that question. Now, that brings up some interesting questions for us. Could we ever do something similar? How so? Well, what if, what if you were talking with some religious person and they mentioned that they were a part of a, a church that meets in a certain place, you know, in this, in this general area. And 
you're like, well, let's see, uh, there's no faithful church over there. You know, what do you call yourselves? Well, we don't really have much of a name. We just are Christians. and talk. Well, you know, do you know so-and-so and so-and-so? And so? No, no, don't know those. Well, then it can't be a faithful church. Now, would that be, would that be the way we ought to look at that? You should check the directory first. Yeah, yeah. Have you got some kind of list somewhere that you've seen of? Well, these are these are you know churches that are whatever faithful or or, or something like that. I mean, what if you ran across somebody and they didn't know anybody you knew and they didn't know any churches you knew, but they were meeting with some other Christians and they were serving the Lord in the way the Bible teaches? Could they be right? Why couldn't they? Why don't they have every bit as much authority and ability to study the Bible and follow it as what we do? You know, sometimes we get this very denominational concept that, you know, we've sort of got our organization, we got our people we know, and we've got our list, or we got our whatever, and, you know, if you're not one of these, you must be wrong. Well, who gave us the monopoly on the name of Jesus? No one. You know, and, and that's what the disciples seem to be thinking here. That if they weren't actually in the immediate company of this group who was traveling with Jesus, they couldn't be right. Well, nobody has to apply to me to get authorization to follow Jesus. And it may very well be that there are faithful churches of the Lord around here and in various other places that I don't know anything about. But that the Lord does. And he's pleased with. And that he's he's approving of. So the question should never be, well, uh, are you one of us? The question would be, are you one of the Lord's? Comments and questions on all that. Yeah, sir. It's not directly related to the point you just made. Oh, it's all right. Okay. In, at the end of verse 38, it says, because he was not following us. Now, is the us the disciples, or is the us Jesus and the disciples? Well, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they meant Jesus and the disciples. I hope so. <laughs> if not, it's even worse. Because yeah, that, that was, I was kind of worried, you know, they're not following us. They're not us, so. I hope they meant to include Jesus in that one, too. I don't know. <laughs> Yes, yes, but that is the problem. Yeah, they're not asking, are they following you, but are they following us? As if the only ones that are going to be following Jesus are the ones that are right here on our little team. I, that's just a common, you know, mistake that that is easy to make. You know, and we come to think of ourselves as sort of the clearinghouse for fidelity to God, and we're not. I don't think we need to be naive, but on the other thing, on the other hand, why be so skeptical anytime somebody says something and we're just not aware or we don't know? I mean, again, I think you have to enter a situation uh, knowledgeable and ready. But why, so, why be skeptical all the time? Well, I think it's partially the principle we follow. The principle has to be that anybody who serves the Lord is fine with Him if they're truly serving the Lord. Not that we ought not to question that, 
really with anyone, <laughs> you know, and with ourselves. And if somebody comes along and they say, well, you know, we're doing this, 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 and this, and we claim we're worshiping God and faithful to Him, but the, all the things they tell you are certainly different from what the Bible says, well, then they're not following Jesus. They're not doing it in Jesus' name with His authority. You know, we're not saying that you can ignore what the Lord says and He's still going to bless you, but that you cannot know us and still follow the Lord and He'll bless you. Yes, sir. This is what I was thinking about, but I guess I was a little bit too timid to say it first. Um, but, uh, no, I'll try to believe. Wow. But, uh, I guess something I show with is, you know, maybe seeing someone that I don't know very well, and maybe they tell me of a situation they handled in a different way than I would have handled it. I tend to look down on them and think, well, no, obviously you can't be serving the Lord in the right way because you handled that situation totally different than I would have. And I almost make myself the standard. Um, Yes, I think that's easy to do. I think it's easy for us to assume we are right in anything we think or do, and then we begin to judge people on the basis of what we think and do. Because after all, we're the ones who are right. And I think, yeah, we do have to be very careful about that. We always have to go back to this. You know, what happens if you are building a house I don't know a whole lot about this, but I can envision you're cutting two by fours for the studs in the wall, and so you got your pattern, and you cut a two by four, and you use that one to cut the next one, and you use that one to cut the next one, and you use that one to cut the next one. Do you see a problem with that? It becomes very bad very fast. Yeah, it does. Always go back to your pattern to cut the next one. Well, so often I think we sort of go back to us, and and even like. You know, uh, I don't know, sometimes hard to come up with good illustrations that don't create more confusion than they illustrate on something <laughs> like this. But probably we're okay with this one, even though not everyone is. Um, you know, what if I told you, for example, that I understand that in Nigeria, and in a good number of churches in Brazil, when they come to the end of a sermon, they don't offer the invitation. Now, I can imagine somebody saying, wait a minute, we always offer the invitation. you got to offer the invitation. Well, is that the right way to approach that? We always do that. <coughs> Therefore, you must. Shouldn't the question be, well, now, let's see, is there anything in the Bible that says when you come to the end of the sermon, you have to offer an invitation? <laughs> and I think if we ask that question, well, no, there's not. And... Uh, you know, we might have more question about doing it than not doing it really from a biblical standpoint. But it's interesting how sometimes, you know, we come up with sort of our own traditions and our own way of doing things. And, uh, you know, then our way of doing it becomes the standard. And we point the finger at somebody else, not because it's not biblical, we don't even know whether it's biblical, but it's not us. <laughs> not what we do. Well, that's not the standard. So I think just keeping clear about that is a very important thing. Other comments and questions? So, Jesus goes from that to 41. 
whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, you'll not lose his reward. So he goes from one man who's casting out demons for Jesus to the more general principle that anyone who does any small thing for you uh, because you're a Christian will be blessed. There'll probably be a time when cups of water will be hard to come by for these disciples. And anyone who serves another disciple, they've been trying to prohibit a disciple. But what they ought to be doing is offering a cup of water. Or whatever else they can do to lend a hand to one who's being a disciple. So in general, he's pronouncing his blessing on anyone who blesses in some way those who are serving the Lord. That's a good lesson for us. You know, we are, the Lord recognizes, remember the, the story in Matthew 25, the Lord recognizes how we treat His people is how we treat Him. He takes it very personally, the treatment of other servants of God. Alright, questions or comments about 41. Seems like it's almost linked maybe back to the Jesus drawing the child to himself uh, and the, the simpleness of offering a cup of water. And how often do we look down on or, or think little of those who can only offer a cup of water. Yes. But maybe they offer lots of cups, <laughs> but yet, well, that, that is, that's not on par with X, Y, or Z. Yes. Yes, it's interesting. This is what Jesus chose as his illustration. I think he is making a point by that. And then he, he jumps to the other side. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble. That's the opposite of offering a cup of water. Now you're trying to trip him. He says it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. You know what a millstone is, right? What do they do on a millstone? Ground the grain, the wheat. So it was a huge stone. It was the lower stone. They might have an upper stone that they could move on top of it. This was the great big stone that they grind the wheat on top of. You know, hard telling how much one of those things would weigh. You remember uh, poor Abimelech uh, getting a big headache from one of those? Um... But uh, what would happen if you cast a guy overboard with a millstone like this hung around his neck? <laughs> well, your boat would probably jump out of the water as he went. <laughs> yeah, that too. Uh, you know, that'd be a quick ticket to the bottom, and no way up. I mean, this is just this is about, that's about as graphic a figure of absolute destruction, right like that, as you can come up with. And Jesus meant it that way. He's trying to say how terrible it is to cause another Christian to stumble. Now when he says to cause him to stumble, what does he mean? To cause him to sin? Yeah. To cause him to, to be tripped up in their spiritual walk. To cause him to sin. To cause him to, to not do well spiritually. I mean, anything I do that that, you know... I don't know, um, hurts, that, that, that injures a person's relationship with God. You know, here, 
Now, and think about what you can do. Can you can you think of an illustration of how you could cause someone to stumble in that? One of the ones that comes up a lot sometimes is if you are immodest in your dress. Okay. You, you walk into a room and we'll use the typical example. A woman walks in and she's not dressed properly and all of her Christian brothers and sisters or hopefully more so the brothers and sisters look at her <laughs> and they, they look at her and, and have lust for her. Sure. So. Yeah, that's a good example. What about this one? What about um, you're out with some friends and you're, you've seen a movie that's got some pretty bad stuff in it, but it was a cool movie, and so you're like, hey, come, let's go see this movie. And you may even get somebody who's like, eh, you don't know, I've heard that's not very good. Oh, I saw it. It's not too bad. We can go see it. And I don't know, maybe you were able to see it without sin, but what if they're not? And you talked them into it. I think that's a pretty relevant example. You, you really have to think about their spiritual well-being. You know, how's this going to affect them? Maybe you ought to even think about how it's going to affect you, and he's going to talk about it in the next section. But right here, you know, don't you do something that's going to lead them to, to fall spiritually. Comments or questions? Seems like any time that we do something borderline, yeah, that's more. This is more of the problem. I don't know. Maybe than our than ourselves. Maybe we can handle it. I doubt it, but maybe we can. But we're on the border, and the other person may go off the edge because we're on the border. I think that applies to a lot of things. I mean, one I comes to my mind is following rules. We we like to stretch the rules in this, and we joke about the rules in this, and we break the rules in this. And other people, I think, can see that where God says obey authorities. Obey, you know, submit to governing authorities. Obey your parents. Obey those in charge. God put them there. Yet if we make a game of that, I think that can lead others. Oh well, yeah, we 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 really uh, we really tricked the the teacher. We tricked our parents. We tricked the elders. We got by with this with God. You know where does I think that would be one where we could really cause people to stumble. Good point. Maybe you got some more examples, Scott. Good thoughts on that. Uh, I guess something comes to mind is like almost unjust criticism. Maybe jumping on someone's back. Um, you know, they don't deserve or even jumping on someone's back in a situation that isn't correct. Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, that'd be a whole different uh, thing. We could do the same thing. Could discourage them and turn them away. What else? Yeah, I mean, like discouraging someone to the point that they stop doing what they're supposed to be doing because you weren't encouraging and helpful to them. Maybe at what's the use? Yeah, it won't do any good anyway. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's easy to do. I mean, maybe they, maybe they're motivated to talk to somebody about the gospel. We're like, ah, they won't listen. <laughs> yeah. You think of all sorts of different ways. Gossip. Yes. I mean, you tell that little bit, that little tidbit, and, and then, they've just heard it, and now they have to struggle they, with not repeating it. Yes. 
Good point. Yeah, lots of good things are bad things as they are. <laughs> lots of good applications. Yeah. But you just have to care about them. And, well, that really leads us to the next room, which is, these are kind of hard to separate. I mean, most of the things we're talking about here, we first think about causing them to stumble, but look at verse 43. If your hand causes you to stumble. Because a lot of things we're talking about, it's not only that it led somebody else to sin, <laughs> what about me, my participation and my involvement? So if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. And your eye as well. Think about your own spiritual life and things that are going to cause you to trip and fall. Even something precious, like your hand or your foot or your eye or whatever. I mean, what's Jesus saying about, um, you know, our, uh, the risk involved in stumbling? You could go to hell into unquenchable fire. And that is so bad that any sacrifice we have to make not to go there is worth it. Even if you have to cut off your hand or your foot. I doubt that Jesus is really encouraging the application of a you know, surgical procedure to uh, eliminate our hands. I think he's trying to make this very graphic and very shocking. Kind of like the millstone idea. To really make us stop and think. It may be something you really care about. It may be something pretty important to you. It may be something that you're really attached to. But if it's going to cause you to sin, whatever sacrifice it may take, it's well worth it. Not to go to the place of unquenchable fire where the worm doesn't die. It's interesting, Jesus spoke more about eternal torment than probably anybody else in the whole Bible. Uh, and he kind of makes you wonder, I, I suppose he knew more about it. You know, I mean, if you were Jesus, you understood as fully as he did what that was all about. Wouldn't you warn about it a lot? He at least knew what eternal uh, heaven was like and knew missing that in other words knowing what the reward was maybe even magnified his uh, his description of hell does that make sense in other words Certainly. saying you don't want to miss heaven it's really really bad <laughs> to miss it yeah, I mean, you've got missing something so wonderful and having something so horrible. You've just got such huge contrasts, Anita. Didn't he create hell? Yes, I think he did. So he would know exactly how bad it was. Yeah, and we know exactly why he created it, too. Don't we? He's prepared for the devil and his angels. Yeah, the punishment that the devil and his angels deserve. What do you mean by the worm not dying? Do the 
little worms are just going to keep eating you and eating you. Doesn't it refer to the eternal quality of it? That it's not escapable? Yes, I think so. But the worm is like, I, I think of like maggots crawling all over you. And you can't ever get away from them. And they're, they're, they don't die. They just multiply and they're just everywhere. It's just really, I mean, fire is very painful, but the maggots everywhere is very, you know, disgusting. I mean, there's not a word for that. I don't know what the word is. But, you know, that's also makes your skin crawl. And it's just a place of all the most horrific things you can imagine. And it just keeps going. No wonder, he says, get rid of anything, no matter how precious. That really makes sense <laughs> when you think about the alternative. Other comments or thoughts on all that? Just sort of another random thing. Um, Thank you. <laughs> If you look at the three things he mentions, hand, foot, and eye, if you want to get allegorical, you could talk about what you do, where you go, and what you see. Sure. So, sure. Just, anybody need a quick sermon? There's your three things. Well, thank you. Yeah, but that's right. I think that's the point of those. That's a good point. Kind of thinking about like the eternal nature of it, and you know, like we we uh, like I guess we love this one thing so much on Earth, and uh, we're sitting in hell for like forever, and we'd be thinking, I missed heaven for this. We realize how stupid it was. Yeah. So you see that danger comes to disciples, both outside and inside. Others tripping us up, and ourselves tripping ourselves up. You know, you've got both of those things occurring. And uh, so you've got a lot to watch out for. Other thoughts? Alright, well I think we'll stop here, and I'll say 49 and 50 for next week. That'll force us to think a little bit. And... Um, Actually, I think we figured out that I'll be here next week, and I won't even be here for two weeks. And then I'll be back here on Thursday night.